it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, so welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 177. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to answer a couple of great listener questions, and I'm going to go ahead and turn over to my friend, Andrew, and he's going to go ahead and read the first question. Yeah, let's give it a whack. So this question comes from Anthony. He says, Andrew and Dave, first, let me thank you both for starting me down the path of personal investment. I've been a subscriber for about a year and binge listened to all the old podcasts. I've read numerous suggested finance books and found other podcasts that have added a complimentary and or contrary opinion. I am much more confident as an investor and I owe it all to your program. Be proud of your ability to help others. That, that feels good to read. So thanks for, thanks for uh, reaching out and saying that. Uh, he continues and he says, my question is related to COVID related unemployment benefits and retirement accounts. My daughter is 18 years old, lives under my roof, and is a senior in high school. In March, she was laid off. In September, the gym reopened, and my daughter worked limited hours. She filed for unemployment in March and has been receiving unemployment benefits. I expect her to earn about 4500 from her employer for 2020, but she will also receive about $7,000 from unemployment benefits. 
And he says, I have been paying all of her bills and her money has been accruing in a savings account in case of an emergency. Assuming the above earnings of $4,500, is she eligible to contribute the $6,000 max to a Roth IRA? I know the unemployment benefits will be taxed as income, but does the unemployment benefit count as income that can be used to fund a retirement account? I don't want to do anything illegal, and I cannot seem to find any answers on the web. Thanks in advance for any advice you may provide. So, yes. All right. So that's a very interesting question, and uh, thanks for reaching out, Anthony. So here here are some answers for you. So let's start with your daughter's income and whether she can contribute to an IRA, a Roth IRA or not. Uh, the quick answer is yes. Anybody can earn, anybody that earns any, has any uh, wages is eligible to contribute to a Roth IRA at any age. So whether she's six months old or whether she's 18, she can contribute to the Roth IRA. So any earned income that she has, you guys can contribute to that at any point. So there's that part of the, the the question. So up to the match, if she has $6,000 of money that she's earned from her job, absolutely, she can do it. Uh, the other part of your question with the unemployment benefits, that unfortunately, you cannot contribute to an IRA. Uh, IRAs are meant to be retirement accounts that we put earned income in. And because they're unemployment benefits, the IRS uh, looks very unfavorably upon that. Uh, so no, unfortunately, you will not be able to put any of those monies into a Roth IRA. Uh, so I, I think that kind of, I guess, answers that question. And something that I guess I was thinking about while we were talking about this question before we came on the air, one thing that if you are ever in a doubt of trying to find some answers and maybe go to the Google machine and it's it's not giving you what you want to know, uh, pick up the phone and call your bank. Uh, they will be able to answer those questions for you. They are smart people and they're there to help you. And I know that when I worked at Wells Fargo, these were lots of questions, kinds of questions that we would get all the time. So just about any banker that works at a bank is going to know the answer to these questions. And uh, there's no shame at all in calling and asking them because that's what they're there for is to help. And of course, you can reach out to Andrew and I at any time and we'll do our best to answer the question as well. But uh, I hope that kind of answers the question. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Sir Andrew? Did you know that Robinhood doesn't have a customer service number? Seriously? Uh, I am 100% serious. <laughs> no, I did not. But I'm not going to I'm not going to lie, I'm not that surprised. <laughs> given especially given lately the troubles that they've had, can you imagine if they had one? Oof. Exactly. So, you know, you can call your banker unless you have a Robinhood account in which case Switch over to a Schwab or Fidelity or somebody credible, please. Yeah, I would. I would second that. I, I can. I can vouch for both Wells Fargo and Schwab as being very customer oriented and very customer friendly for sure. So uh, I would definitely recommend that. So those are my thoughts. All right, uh, let's move on to the next question. Hey Andrew, I've gone through about thirty episodes of your podcast. Loving it and have done about three months of research figuring out my financial commitment and where it can feasibly go with my investment budget. I hope it's okay, but I have a quick question. Uh, I'm thinking about investing my tax return and just doing it in a dividend aristocrat, and I have my Coca-Cola. How do you feel about 52-week highs and lows? 
just wanting to invest in a, an aristocrat and when I have enough money to throw at it. What are your thoughts? Andrew, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so let's take that in three different parts, Dave. So maybe we can start with thoughts about Coca-Cola in general. I think it's a stock that a lot of people might think about. Obviously, it was one that was Warren Buffett's best investment. And when I think of customer loyalty, I think there's there's not many companies that, that have the kind of customer loyalty that a Coca-Cola would have. But at the same time, when I look at the Coca-Cola stock today, it's it's trading pretty expensively. And even after the pandemic, after after it crashed like everything else, it's still pretty expensive. Wall Street's basically implying eleven to twelve percent growth. And so I have trouble me personally, I have trouble saying that. I would be comfortable investing in Coca-Cola and expecting it to grow by double digits for the next 10 years, particularly considering how much growth has slowed down over the past several years. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think uh, Coca-Cola obviously is a, a, a big brand name that just about everybody in the world is probably familiar with. And they've obviously built a fantastic business. And I know, like you mentioned, Warren Buffett has derived quite a bit of wealth from his investment in Coke. But at this point in the game, it seems like they are a mature company and their best days, I don't want to say they're behind them because we never really know. But I think right now, it's not really a vehicle that's really going to drive a lot of growth in it. I I was looking at one of our favorite websites, quickfs.net, and their revenue growth over the last 10 years is 1.9%. And that doesn't scream a lot of encouragement for growth. Now, they're a dividend aristocrat. They've been paying a dividend for a very long time. Uh, the dividend is certainly safe. But if you're looking for a combination of growth in the company as well as growth in the dividend, I don't know that this is necessarily the best choice. I guess that's kind of my thought on the company. And I know you know a little bit about the history of the company. And I think it's, uh, I don't know, I just i just worry that maybe this is not going to be a long-term grower. And if you're going to put a, a substantial amount of money into it, I think there might be better options. What do you think? Yeah, and I, I like the, the points you brought up. A, a company like Coke, it would be a fine investment and I would, consider a company like that, but only if the price reflected its growth prospects. So, you know, we could talk about what it's done all all you want, but if we think about the bigger picture of, okay, this is a company that creates sodas and with all of the, it just seems like with every day that passes, more and more people seem to be health conscious and over the last 10 to 20 years, we've definitely seen a push towards that with nutrition facts being put on restaurant menus and people just whether, you know, whether they're they're buying a snake oil juice cleanser or they're buying actual real better food for them, people seem to be doing that. You could see it you go to Whole Foods or any other place that really puts an emphasis on organic 
things. So that as a as a trend makes it hard to believe that Coca-Cola will have the same kind of growth that had in the 80s and 90s. Not to say it's not going to grow, like you said, has some fantastic brands, Sprite, uh, has a couple energy drinks under its belt that it, it distributes. All of those things are great things, but if you're going to pay if you're going to buy a stock that's a slower grower, you're going to want to pay a lower price. And so I I look at the list with the dividend aristocrats and it's it's I would say it's it's very interesting because I look at this list and I see a wide variety of types of businesses. So, you know, and it's not just Coca-Cola, but I think the stereotype with big dividend payers is that they're generally matured. And I don't think that's always necessarily the case, but this list definitely has a lot of companies that I would say fit into that into that slot of being in an industry where it's kind of hard to see where their next big growth is going to come from. But I also see I, I see a stock right in here that I was looking at quite intensely and I almost pulled the trigger on last month. I see three stocks in my portfolio that are scattered throughout this list. Um, and you have some stocks that arguably are still in the middle or middle to late stages of their growth and probably have 10, 20, 30 years of decent growth ahead of them and they can grow the dividend along with that. So I like dividend aristocrats. I obviously love the idea of buying a stock that grows over time, grows those profits, which grows the dividend, which I'm able to reinvest and really get double compounding effects. But you really have to be careful in the sense, you know, and I guess we should also define, are we talking about, is this your first investment or is this something that, you know, you've been trying to build a portfolio for a while. So, you know, if you're just starting out, I think you could pick any company and use that to 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 just get your feet wet. But when you start talking about investing significant amounts, a dividend aristocrat, just because it has the name or the title doesn't mean it's going to provide you the same results. And so I think it's it's important to think deeply about not only the company or what the company has done, but also what industry it's in and how the world is moving and how it could grow over time. Because if it doesn't grow over time, it's not going to be able to grow your dividend over time. And if it can't do that sustainably, then the the end game to that is either they load up with debt until one day they can't load up anymore, or they just cut that dividend and you see some serious especially with, with the stocks in this list that have a reputation for growing a dividend, once they cut the dividend, ExxonMobil, perfect example of that, you'll you'll see the stock crash quite a bit because investors obviously don't like that. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. It's funny you, that you mentioned Exxon because they have been beaten up in the markets over the last, I guess, five or six months. And for sure, 
with all the depression in oil prices that has hurt the company. And there's been lots of conversation on the street, has been seeing it on the news a lot in the last couple of weeks about whether or not they're going to be cutting their dividend. And as a dividend aristocrat, that has really been one of their really guiding lights, I guess, if you can. And if they do cut that dividend, you will see that stock price crash like a rock. Uh, that's, I guess, the one thing that's really kind of been holding them up over the last, I don't know, year or so since the oil, particularly since the oil market has been so beaten up. And I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens with all of that. Maybe before we go a little bit farther with this, maybe we should talk a little bit about dividend, what a dividend aristocrat is for those who are unfamiliar with that term. Uh, would you like to shed some light on that subject? Yeah, it's just basically a company who's been paying a dividend for 25 years or more and not just paying the dividend, but paying a dividend that grows every year. So obviously that's something that we try to look for. And I like looking at companies who are maybe not necessarily dividend aristocrats yet, but maybe companies with a history of 10 years, nine years, eight years, seven years, things that are not maybe as much on the radar with dividend investors, but still tend to have a lot of growth left in them. I think those can be a good place to look and you don't have to combine yourself to a dividend aristocrats list to get dividend aristocrats results. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And that's a, that's a very good idea. Uh, actually, I hadn't thought of that. So thanks for sharing that with us. That's a very good idea. Uh, I know for me with the, the dividend aristocrats, of course, one of my favorite sectors is the finance area, of course. And because that area has been beaten up extensively and especially since the pandemic began, they have not recovered uh, like a large part of the market has. And so there are a few financials in the dividend aristocrat uh, field that have been smacked down, Aflac being one in particular. Uh, I don't know that it would necessarily invest in it at this particular time they have they have some struggles ahead of them at the moment uh more unrelated to covid than just uh, business issues that they're going to have to work through uh it's it's nothing drastically structurally dangerous just they a large part of their revenue comes from japan and they have and it's a good thing, but it's not a good thing. The good thing is they are a market leader in Japan in that part of the industry, uh, which is a great thing. The bad thing is they've kind of saturated the market and there's probably not as much growth available in that avenue. So they might have to think other ways to generate more revenue from that part of the world. So that I guess that's going to be something that they're going to, they'll figure it out, but it's something that's going to take them a little bit of time. And so I think that's why Wall Street is kind of reduced to their value, if you will, and along the lines right now. So that's, I guess, one of my thoughts about that anyway. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. 
Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Yeah, the finance industry is definitely tough right now, especially with the low interest rates. But, you know, there have been a few. you've, You've picked a few successfully. But I would say in the aggregate, it's a very tough space to be in. Uh, I do want to answer the other part of the question. He mentioned the 52-week high, 52-week high, 52-week low. What's the thoughts on that? So to define that, that's simply 52-week high would be when a stock is trading at its highest it's been in the last 52 weeks. Same on the flip side with the 52-week low. And you know, for me, I, I don't know. Emotionally, I like to... I like to buy a stock when it's below its 52-week high because it makes me feel like I'm getting a good deal. Or even if it's close to its 52-week low, makes me feel like I'm getting a good deal. But if you really think about it intelligently and rationally and without emotions, a 52-week high or 52-week low has no bearing on reality. It, It has no anchor to it. It's just literally a random point in time that we're choosing to examine and the stock happens to be trading at a certain point. So for me, I've I've moved away from looking at that and I've gotten a lot more comfortable buying a stock close to its 52-week high. Because if you think about if if you have a great business and it's a business that's able to grow year after year after year, whether that's because it's a market leader, whether it's because it, it's in a market that's growing and and industry is growing, the economy is growing, it, it's in a very strong industry, or it's expanding, it's going into other markets, it's going into China, Japan, 
India, any of those things make make the company grow. Well, if you think about it, outside of recessions, you're really not going to have a period in time where the stock shouldn't trade at its 52-week high because that's what businesses do, right? Businesses grow. As the business grows, so does the stock price. And so it's a very long-term thing. It takes a long time and it, it, it can be bumpy on the way. That's why we, we start to see these things like 52-week high, 52-week low metrics that, that get popular and get widely used and thought of. But if you really break it down, the stock's going to be trading closer to a 52-week high than not. And if if it is, if it's always trading near a 52-week low, that means the business is shrinking and it's probably not a good investment most of the time. But knowing that and knowing how a business should grow over time, its value should grow over time, the stock price should follow it over time, it's going to be very hard to pick good companies that are growing and also not pick them at a 52-week high. And that's just, if you if you slow down and think of it logically, that's the conclusion you have to come to. And so you got to shake that idea that I have to stay away from a 52-week high because that's just not the case at all. Yeah, I like I like those ideas. The 52-week high and a 52-week low for me, I don't honestly pay a whole lot of attention to them. Uh, really, what I think about when I think about those, and I like the 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 ideas that Andrew was was telling us about. I think those are really good ways to think about it. Uh, Monish Prabhai, one of my favorite investors, he talks a lot about the 52-week low as something that he uses as a way of screening for stocks. He, In his mind, when he thinks about a 52-week low, he, think, he feels like that that could be an opportunity to find a company that's undervalued. And he uses that as part of his screening process. And I think in theory, that's probably not a bad idea, uh, for sure to think about that because you could, uh, you could find opportunities in that realm. I'm not necessarily thinking that he's going to buy companies that are always at a 52 week low, but I think it's probably not a bad place to, you know, look for those rocks that you want to turn over to f- try to find investment ideas. Uh, the other thing that I think about that I read about somewhere in the past was, looking at the range between the 52-week high and the 52-week low. And if you see a company that has a narrow range, I'll just use an example. Let's say a company is trading between $20 and $35. That's a pretty narrow range. And when you see a company that's trading between a narrow range like that, to me, it indicates that there's maybe not a lot of growth opportunity in the company. Uh, it could also indicate too that there's not a lot of volatility in the company too, which maybe some people would enjoy. But the the I guess the growth aspect of it is something that if you're not seeing wider ranges, that means it doesn't have as high of a ceiling from its low, and that's something I think to think about as well. Uh, when you think about the 52-week high and low, especially now when we've seen in this year, we've seen some pretty drastic lows. We've also seen some pretty drastic highs. I would argue that uh, Tesla probably trades above their 52-week high about every other day, <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. But uh, it's uh, it's interesting to to think about. And I think it's 
it's kind of like, for me, it's kind of like charts. It's interesting to look at, but I don't really base a lot of decisions on either one of those ideas, the 52-week high or low. I guess we, we, we could take some time to be clear to, you know, when I, when I buy the 52 week high, I'm still considering it to be buying cheaply or buying at a discount to intrinsic value because I'm looking at the value of its future cash flows. And that's how I'm determining how cheap or how expensive something should be. So, you know, when I mentioned that Coca Cola is trading at 11%, 12% growth implied, that's based on on valuation metrics and so i think the the easiest way to think about it is i i the 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 simplest way i can try to conceptualize it is with the price to earnings ratio because that one's pretty simple and you know with free cash flows it's tied to to price to earnings earnings are tied to free cash flow so everything kind of revolves around that i feel like as the earnings grow, that's how the stock prices grow, and that that's been pretty, that's been shown pretty pretty much too. So if if you look at like the average of PE ratios over the very very long term, it's been around fifteen, and that's for all sorts of stocks in the S and P five hundred, all sorts of years that we look at. So when a stock trades below that, then you can kind of generally say that you're going to get a good deal but you know that's what the caveat that the business also grows sufficiently and then if if a company's trading above that then it could be expensive unless the growth is that much better than all the other companies around them then it might actually be cheap so that's kind of the way you have to look at cheap versus expensive it's not a chart thing it's not a 52 week high 52 week low thing it's not a Hey, I'm buying this because it's priced at twelve dollars. Well, all, all the other stocks like Apple are priced at one hundred and twenty dollars. It, it's not about that nominal price value either. It really is in relation to what the business earns, and there's varying degrees of that. And it's not as simple as just looking at a PE ratio and the growth, but that's the general idea, and that's why a company like Coca Cola looks expensive right now, whereas some other companies on this list especially based on some of the the growth drivers that they've had lately might not be as expensive and actually look cheap. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great analogy and I, I love the the idea of of comparing the price to earnings ratio to the the free cash flow and and talking about kind of how those are tied to each other and how they're tied to the performance of, of the company. We have to remember when we're talking about 52 week high and 52 week lows that that's that's only looking at the price of the stock and the stock market. And the price does not always equate to what the company is worth. And think about, think about when you buy a car. When you go buy a car, most of us have an idea of how much a particular car is worth that we want to go buy. And we, when we go to the dealership, we're looking for a value, Let's say that we want to buy a car that is, we think is worth 20,000 and the car dealer is asking 25 for it. And then if they're away, if during our air quote negotiations for the car, we can talk them into charging us 18,000 for it, then we're going to feel like we got a deal, that we got a discount. We got more value than what we paid for. 
And when we're talking about stocks and we're looking at investing in companies, that's really what we're looking at. We're looking for companies that are worth more than we're going to pay for them. Because the idea is, is that when you pay for that company less than what it's worth, it'll grow into that value and you will earn that extra money as well as going beyond what it's worth. Because the thing about the stock market, we always have to remember, is that in the short term, it's a voting machine. And in the long term, it's a weighing machine, which means that in the short term, it's only going to it's it's going to raise the prices of things that are very popular that people are always paying attention to. And then when that spotlight drifts off of those companies, then it's going to be more about what the company is actually doing and less attention is going to be paid to it. So generally the price returns to normal. It reverts to the mean, if you will. And really, so when we're talking about 52 week highs and lows, that's really just based on price only. It has no other idea of what the value of a particular company may or may not be. And all the things that Andrew was talking about with the price to earnings and free cash flow and the relationship between all those things, that all has to do with the performance of the company. And that is ultimately more important than what the 52-week high or low of the particular company might be. It's not bad to look at it and have a reference point again, but as far as like buying it just based on that particular thing, uh, I don't think that that's probably the, the greatest strategy to go with. But I think more of the things that we've talked about along the way of our podcast uh, will benefit you in the long run far more. And I think that's one of the things that we just, I guess, always kind of have to try to keep in mind when we're talking about the stock market is we're not buying a ticker, we're buying a company. And that has to be our focus. So, so true. Yeah. Fantastic words. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank the two folks for sending us those great questions. Thank you again for taking the time to write to us. And I hope you find our answers satisfactory and help answer your questions. If you guys have any other questions out there, please do not hesitate to send them to us. We love answering these on the air and we love helping you guys any way that we can. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. Go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on a safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.